<laughs> yes. Hi, you're listening to Faded Mates, episode one, book one, A Hunger Like No Other. I'm Sarah McLean. I write romance novels. I read romance novels. I'm Jen. I read romance novels, and I talk about them a lot on Twitter. So we're going to talk about them a lot in your ear holes. Ew. <laughs> Is that not sexy? It's not sexy. not sexy. No. All right, I'll take them out of my next book. Okay. Um, so this podcast, if you listen to the first episode, which is numbered 0.5, because um, it was really just an introduction to us and to our obsession with Cressley Cole's Immortals After Dark series, you know that we are going to do, this is basically a read-along podcast. Like, we hope you've read the book, or you're planning to read the book, or you're thinking about reading the book, or maybe you just like the dulcet tones of our voice in your ear holes. <laughs> See, I feel like now you're going to say, like, moist, nipple, <laughs> an ear hole, all the do words I don't like. favorite word? Nipple. Nipple is your least favorite? Really? Yeah, and I don't know why. Do you prefer... You pre- you prefer things like nubbin? <laughs> I should also say I poured myself a glass of wine for this one because yeah. it's going to get real. Yeah. I'm not sure there's like a better word for it, though. That's I think I just, right. It's like straining tip. I mean, ha- as, as somebody who has written, we're just diving right in, you guys. Right in. <laughs> Welcome to our show. I feel like this is how we get romance readers to really sign on. <laughs> yeah, sure. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's no way around it. It's not like moist. You can come up with different words. Sure. Dewy. Sweet rain. <laughs> okay. Now that was just mean. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to sweet rain. I like to think we'll get to sweet rain somewhere around the time that we'll get to sweet ruin because I feel like well done. maybe it's all connected. Bring it right back. Um, but that's, you know, that's for future for a future show. Okay. So last time you did actually introduce this book. So I think we could you we both reread it for this event. Do you want to do like a brief overview of like the plot for those of you who are just joining us and have not read the book? Um so to set the scene, this is the first book in Immortals After Dark. So we really know nothing going into it. Um except in chapter 1, um we meet our hero, uh, Lachlan McReeve, who the McReeves will become very important over the course of the next 18 books. Um, so remember that last name. He, it will be back. And um, <clears throat> Lachlan is a werewolf, as one is, um, and he is trapped in the catacombs below Paris. And it's understood that he's been trapped there for at least 100 years, probably closer to 200. And he has been trapped in eternal flames, bound by mystical witchy chains, um, enchanted chains, enchanted. if you will. I can never remember that word. Witched. It's a w- verb. Witched chains. Um, and um, he has been tortured endlessly because all of, as one might imagine from the series title, all of the characters in this series are immortals. Um, and so they they can't die unless... You know, something quite serious happens to them and apparently being ritually um, murdered by fire (laughs) is not one of those ways. Um, So he is down there and, you know, just down there, um, tortured by his arch enemies, the vampires. And suddenly he scents above him on the streets of Paris uh, a woman who he instantly recognizes as his mate. And he, uh, in in absolute, because he's waited a thousand years for this woman to turn up, he does everything that he can to get out of these witched chains, including gnawing off his leg, <laughs> which does regenerate. So it's fine. Ultimately, it's all fine. It's fine. But there is a piece of this book where he's hobbling down the Champs Elysees after. Uh, his faded mate. Pride without a head. A wolf without a foot. Who happens to be, of course, he thinks, a vampire. I mean, she is part vampire, but. Yeah. Now, she's interesting. Her name is Emmeline, Emmeline Troy. And 
um, Emma, he calls her for most of the book. And Emma, um, I want to, can I put a pin in us talking later about the nods to um, Greek mythology? Okay. Yeah, because I want to have a real talk about Fury, too. Yes, there's a lot to unpack in this one. So the thing that's really interesting about this is Emma is, um, it for an immortal, is very young. She's only 70-something. But of course, she looks like she's 23, and she recently graduated from Tulane. She's a co-ed, which I actually highlighted because <laughs> it's such a funny old-fashioned i was like 2004 s- kind of word <laughs> do we still use that word co-ed okay uh, and <laughs> great here i am it was for a it. kinder gentler time sure exactly to be fair i mean we are recording this on a day you guys so <laughs> yes it's true it's true um and she is you know it's interesting i think that we are going to talk a lot about this book like sort of for its plot but also what we think it's trying to do and emma very much presents at the beginning of the book as a type of heroine that in romance landia has a pretty unkind um moniker right like too dumb to live yeah yeah well it's interesting that you say that because i don't know that i would label her as as too stupid to live i think i would label her more as like a mary sue at the beginning of this interesting okay I think she's – and I think she's crafted this way. And we're going to – Yes. I know we're going to talk about this, but I think Cressley Cole – there was absolutely – I know this because I've read the books that came before this from Cressley's pen. um, And I've read all the books that came after it too. And there's no way she wrote a Mary Sue. And then we instantly sort of see that she's not really – So I was rereading as well, right? I know we both did. And there's a part where – Emma sort of self names like it's page three hundred and two, right? She wasn't she wasn't too stupid to live. She was too far gone to care, is what it says. Talk about maybe what you think is the difference between a Mary Sue and a like a the too stupid to live trope. Should we start with talking about Emma, or do you want to start with talking about Lachlan? Well, wait. I also think like I just want to I just want to tie up the loose end of this the book itself and the plot. Um, so uh, basically, every book in this series. And I think that's true. I mean, when we get to one that's not like this, we'll I'll have to mail Cobra a little bit. But every book in this series is basically at its core trope a faded mate story. Um, because every member of the lore has one single faded mate um over the course of his or her lifetime. Although, wait, that's not true for the oh, see, here we go. Well, no, it, we're gonna get to it. Yeah, that's true. I know. But for vamp but for vampires and for the like a for sure there's faded means. Yes. The story is of course the internal conflict of the story and we're going to talk about this over the course of the podcast but there are two kinds of conflict, internal conflict and external conflict. And the internal conflict is all the like emotional like drama and the external conflict is all the like world building like crazy everything is it everybody's at war, the whole thing is falling apart around them kind of conflict. But this book is really interesting because the internal conflict is that the hero knows for a fact that the heroine is his fated, fated mate. She does not know that she is his mate instantly because there has never been such a thing as a female vampire. At least all the female vampires that anybody – people believe that female vampires have basically died off. So um, there is no evidence that female vampires have a fated mate. Um, And then on top of it, there is this sort of – it's sort of a perfect revenge story where he um, has been chained by these vampires under Paris and tortured for years because the vampires and the werewolves are mortal enemies. And Emma is a vampire who may or may not be related to the people that he – that have tortured him. So there is hatred and anger and real fury – um, from Lachlan's perspective at the beginning of the book. And then Emma really starts to evolve into a place where she too feels hatred and anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really beautifully done. So that is the sort of overarching theme of this book. It's a revenge story and a fate of mate story. Well, and I think for, I, I think one of the things about this book that I think is interesting is it really does play too, though, with a lot of what I think of as being really classic tropes 
um, you know, she's young. She's a virgin. She um, doesn't really believe in her own strength or know her own strength. So, you know, even though she's more worldly than him in some ways, because, of course, he's been trapped in the catacombs for 150 years, she's, like, innocent in in ways. And I I do think that's really purposeful because... And has um, been kept in the dark by many, many, many people around her, um, which starts to become – it starts to become very clear to the reader, I think before it starts to become clear to Emma, that um, the whole world is kind of conspiring against her in not a – and not in a cruel, intentional way. or I mean, it is intentional, but not in an intentionally cruel way. In a way that you know, they sort of think Emma's too soft to be able to de- deal. Right. And she thinks that about herself. She doesn't think of herself as having any kind of strength. And I think that the it's interesting, this, um, her arc, right, of finding her inner strength is very interesting to me, and but also was sort of unexpected. Because when she does first start out, when we first meet her, she is kind of annoying. And I don't typically find heroines annoying, but I found her really passive in a way that I really, in the first 50 pages, sort of struggled to understand what, why she was acting the way she was acting. I think that that's in part because Lachlan feels like such an asshole. Oh, yeah. So, and here's where we're going to talk about it. So we are um, recording this show on, uh, what's the date? On October 1st. Um, For those of you who are um, listening to the show, you will know if Brett Kavanaugh has been confirmed to the Supreme Court or not, um, which is kind of wacky to think about um but right now we are what three days four days out from the um kavanaugh testimony before um the senate judiciary committee and my heart is full of rage yes (laughs) and yes so what's interesting is i reread this book before the kavanaugh hearings and I thought to myself, like, oh, you know. So I think we've t- I think we talked about this last episode, but I came to Immortals After After Dark two years ago, maybe three, maybe two and a half years ago, um, and I read all eighteen books in two weeks, and I was obsessed from the start of hung- of A Hunger Like No Other, and then I did not A Hunger Like No Other is a is a book that I have not read again until now because I have other favorites in the series. Okay. And I want to talk about, before you continue, I want to talk about my experience, which is I read it when it first came out, right? Like, so 2006 or something, and then reread it last year at some point. But then my, I have a romance book club at 57th Street Books in Chicago. And this was one of the books we read this summer. And So I read it again, just post Me Too, and it read differently. And I will tell you, it was not... Now, there's a lot of um, new romance readers in my group, people who've maybe only read historical or are my friends and come because they like me. And this book was a real struggle for a lot of them. They felt it was very... Like Lachlan was such a jerk. And some of of these are friends who... um, like, again, are very impacted by the Me Too movement and just felt really like, I can't believe you're asking me to read this because it feels a little rapey. And so even then me rereading the first 50 or so pages since Thursday, like, so it's amazing how my temperature with this book changes given what's going on in the world. Yeah. I mean, I reread last month and definitely saw um, the first, and when we talk about Lachlan's behavior, I want I, I want to be very fair because I think, and I know Jen feels this way, and I want her to talk about it. But I'm I believe very strongly that Cressley um, did a lot, and and I should also preface this with I don't know Cressley, <laughs> <laughs> and um and so I don't know anything that I say about anytime I say that I 
I, I, I just mean like as a writer, this is how I feel. Um, I believe that Cressley intentionally drew a character who behaves the way Lachlan does in the first 50 pages so that she could show his evolution. Absolutely. I believe that. It doesn't make that first 50 pages any less painful. No, it doesn't. And so I should say, if you haven't read this book or you are coming back to this book with us during this podcast, um, the first 50 pages are probably going to read a little different to you than they did the first time you read them. And they probably will read a little, a lot problematic to you um, now. And I want to also say this book was written in 2006. It won the Rita for Best Paranormal Romance in 2007, and we have to look at paranormal romance as a yes. product of a time. Yeah. And I think that that's the other thing that was clear to me from my like, romance group is paranormal has a lot of very specific conventions to that subgenre that if you're not familiar with – I, you know, it, it can seem very jarring, right? I'm so familiar with paranormal that I know where to put, like, sort of, right? I know how to, like, trace that against the things I already know. Mm -hmm. But I think for a lot of my friends, it was like, whoa. What am I reading? Yeah, exactly. Especially because uh, when you look at, when you think about people who haven't come to paranormal romance through romance, through the romance route, um, they've usually come to it through Twilight and... The vampire experience in Twilight, the the paranormal experience, is very much like two kind of beta heroes fighting over the heroine um, instead of what is happening here and what happens particularly in like in these romance series, the longstanding romance series that have existed since you know post nine eleven that were written in the early and mid two thousands. These heroes are deeply alpha. And I mean... Oh, yes. I mean, deeply alpha to the point. And alpha to the point of, in this particular case, like, the hero is a, is a werewolf whose entire entire mentality is pack mentality. Aside from faded mate, it's pack and protection. Um, and so, but for the first 50 pages, there's also a lot of... So the way she... The way Cressley codes the alpha in this first 50 page experience is not just pure alpha with a pack protective mentality, which is the kind of alpha that we see now in romance in 2018, um, but an alpha with pack protection, faded mate experience, a kind of mine alpha, the kind of hero who constantly thinks like, she's mine, she's mine, she's mine, she belongs to me, but also a hero who is in a pure rage about the fact that she is his mortal enemy. Mm -hmm. by virtue of being a vampire, and also has been chained um, without, you know, food and chained and tortured without food or any other like human, I use human in a sort of vague way, right, right. human interaction for 150 years. So when he comes out, he's literally beyond his own control, which sounds like I'm forgiving his behavior. And I'm not. I'm just trying to sort of frame these first 50 pages in terms of... Like what to expect. Motivation. Yeah. Right. In light of the Kavanaugh hearings, <laughs> very uncomfortable. Very The, the sort of, um, I deserve this because I've been promised it. <laughs> yeah, you are my fate of me and therefore you should submit to me. Is really interesting, but Emma immediately, she immediately has power even within those first, you know, interactions absolutely yeah and she instantly sort of there is there's sort of a you know uh there's there are some very specious moments but then she basically says like you're not allowed to we're not going to have sex we're not going to be physical um we're not going to interact this way until i want it and he they sort of make this deal that he won't ask for it until that he won't take it until she asks for it and it's not him who makes the deal she basically sort of determines the like sets those boundaries right which i like i think that's an interesting choice because certainly over the course of romance history the alpha who says i won't take it until you ask for it is (laughs) ubiquitous yeah right well i mean like my like funny like lachlan's such an alpha that he's able to drive a car just 
he learns to drive a car just by watching her do it for one sure. day, right? Well, I mean, you know. <laughs> but she said, but there, that's a perfect example. So Cressley is hilariously funny. Um, you know, her voice is incredibly funny. Um, and there's that moment where he does learn to drive a car. He <laughs> says, well, I'm preternaturally strong yes. and brilliant. And therefore, I must be able to learn to drive one of your, I like, know. silly vehicles. I mean, there there's this sort of charm. She's outraged. She's like, is it really that you just, that D for drive? I mean, it's sort of this very funny moment. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I... I I feel this way, and then it's chapter eleven, really, that is the turning point in my mind. And um, what happens during chapter eleven is they've been together for it's about a hundred pages. They've been together for about a hundred pages, and Lachlan has started to calm down. And he started when we're in his POV, we start to sort of see him realize that like Emma is this like calming influence on him, which is what yes. meets should be to each other and i like i the the sort of marry the happily married person in me is like oh i really love that as like the message of me like this sort of like we balance each other but anyway aside from all that um he they still are they have not had sex they are not having sex um and he comes in and he's protecting emma there are a couple of moments where he starts like the sun starts to rise and he's watching her sleep and he thinks to himself oh my god i have to save her from the sun right because she's a vampire so we've sort of seen like cracks in his facade and then and jen is not going to be surprised by this at all because food is my love language (laughs) and he tries to wake her up to go somewhere they're going to scotland to his estate and she's like no i need to sleep and she's clearly not well and like immortals don't get sick so what's wrong with her and he says are you you know what's wrong with you and she refuses to answer and he touches her and she's ice cold and he says um he's he's like you're in his point of view and he is crazy like he he's he can't bear the fact that like she's sick in front of him and he says what's wrong with you and she says i'm hungry and instantly the sort of beast inside him is you know horrified that his mate is going hungry and he didn't know and he didn't know he couldn't he couldn't sense it he didn't notice and so instantly he's like you have to eat and of course she's a vampire so like she has to eat from him and this moment where he's forced not forced where he chooses to bear himself to her and allow his mortal enemy the vampire to feed directly from his body is really powerful and so there's this whole moment and i'm of course like this is where i start to like even now mit in the middle of will kavanaugh be confirmed <laughs> right i'm like melting away at this at this moment because for me food is so id at the end of it like the whole the whole experience of eating for both of them is deeply sexual. Like oh yeah, she he gets instantly hard the moment she penetrates him, which I think is a really interesting. Like for the first book in a series, this yes. kind of there's suddenly like all my like feminism bells are going <laughs> off, right? Like she penetrates him, he gets hard, and then. He um, and then she immediately she just starts to like glow. She becomes deeply, deeply healthy, and in her healthiness, in her health, um, she starts to get super sex positive. Like yeah, she gets absolutely. real sexy. She gets really into sex. She starts to like grind on him. She starts to like take control of their interaction. And then after she's finished eating, she pulls out of him, <laughs> and then punches him in the face and dislocates his jaw. Yes. And I, at this point, am wedded to Cressley Cole forever. (laughs) Like, it's just such a perfect, perfect transition from ancient romance to modern romance. And now I'm going to let Jen talk. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, it's funny because I wanted, like, I think one of the things I'm really interested in is sort of like, what's the like most memorable or best scene in any book, right? Like the thing that you really are like, when I think about this book, it's this. And for me, it's always going to be this scene as well. Along with the scene where they like mate for the first time, which we can talk about too. But I think the other big part of it is... You know, for a hundred pages, Lachlan's just been raging, right? He's so furious. He can't believe that she's his mate. And he just takes and takes and takes from her in so many ways. 
And this is really the first moment where he we see him giving, right? And so it's like this sense of, I mean, and, and you know, the things he's taken from her, it's like her freedom of movement, her money, her, right? Like there's, right, you know, her sort of sense of her, her of being safe in the world. And so now in this sense where he realizes it's not just that she has to feed, but I can feed her. And then very quickly, no one will ever feed her again but me, right? And that this is something that he has always thought of as being abhorrent. And now he it's profoundly, like emotionally, like sexually, physically, in all those ways really moves him. And I think that this is like this really important moment where we see him... I don't know, for the first time, like accepting that her being a vampire isn't all, isn't just something to be, he has to bear, right? It's something that they're, they're, they're going to make something new out of it mm-hmm. together. And I think that there's something really appealing about that. Like, so yes, it's like this incredibly sexy moment, but I also think emotionally it's really charged for him to give to her after he has just been sort of taking. And I think that's like the thing we talked about, like a character's arc. What I'm really interested in is, is, you know, you talked about that transition from like old to new, right? Old school romances are all about the patriarchy, right? About the hero getting everything from the heroine, about getting what he wants from his, from mine. And this is like also a moment where he realizes like, if he really is going to be with her, it's going to be something new they create together that literally no one has ever experienced this before because there's never been a female vampire. And certainly not a female vampire who's been allowed to mate freely, right? Uh, right. Female vampires are valuable, um, incredibly, incredibly valuable, which is another piece of this sort of the external plot of this is Emma's a danger to herself by virtue of being the only one of her kind. Like literally they don't even know anything about her, right? Like, I mean, even at some point there's a lot of anger I feel towards her coven of Valkyries for, because she's half Valkyrie, half vampire for not giving her the information she needs. But at some point it becomes clear there's so much they don't even know. It's not that they purposefully kept things from her. It's that they didn't know either. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and you know it's interesting because when I, I just want to say one more thing about Lachlan in that moment and and that sort of evolution. But I, I think a lot often about um, I I saw Alicia Rye on a panel um, at BEA this year in in New York in in May, and it was a panel on toxic masculinity, and somebody asked the question about alphas like what is an alpha like can alphas exist in 2018 and like what do we want an alpha to be um you know how do we reconcile the experience of the alpha and alicia i thought made a really important point about alphas um that there's it's not enough to just be like strong and domineering and controlling and uh protective of what is yours a true alpha in terms of a valued alpha in the romance world is a character who who caretakes, um, which I think is part of what um, has evolved, why the sort of BDSM romance has evolved so strongly from arguably like the paranormal died off or, or at least quieted down and BDSM books rose in the immediate in the media aftermath of that and that caretaking experience. And this is part of why so much, so many of the writers of BDSM books were so livid about poor representation of mm-hmm. BDSM, the BDSM community um, in books. But there's that caretaking piece is so much a part of the dominant submissive world. Right. Um, and what's interesting about what Cressley is doing is she's writing and we're going to ultimately, we're going to get to and do an episode on the Game Maker series, which has a lot of those themes in it. Um, but what Cressley does so well is harness that caretaking experience. Um and and also from a writer's perspective, doing it in his point of view is the only choice. And I think a lot of writers probably would have made a different choice, but um, it's essential that that scene happen in his point of view. I agree. I absolutely agree because he's 
again, I think part of it is the time period, right? Like my experience with him, especially in this first hundred pages is different every time I read it. But I think that part of it is this sense that he, we have to see him changing and we have to see that he's choosing to change, right? That arc is not convincing if she's dragging him kicking and screaming into the 21st century, right? He has to decide. And that was like, I think I point I made last week, right? Like I'm really interested in his arc and actually in almost all of the books in this question about like, what is modernity, right? Like, what does it mean to be modern? And I think that this for him is this moment where he realizes, hey, maybe everything I thought I knew, I didn't know, which is really her arc as well but his is more about society and and hers is really about herself but they're very similar i think they're like mirror images right like everything i thought i knew is not what i knew and this person is gonna allow me to see myself or the world in a new way or a better way and if i am not willing to change along with the times then i'm a relic right i might as well be back underneath the catacombs of paris Brilliant. Yes. Agree. I would just say also that that's going to come back again and again, particularly with the oldest characters in this series, some of whom are tens of thousands of years old. Um, And the older the character, the more they will struggle with this, this modernity question Um, and their identity and how they can exist as they age in a young world. Well, and I, yes. And I also think it's a question about like personal change, right? Like how do we, I mean, and this is sort of the faded mates thing, like, right. We're coming back to like, how do you change yourself when you're so old or right? Like, I mean, you know, it's like hard to change, you know, anything about yourself, let alone, um, you know, like the more life experience you have, like backing up this idea of who you are. And I think that's it too. Like I think Lachlan at some point metaphorically looks in the mirror and thinks I'm someone I don't like. And if I want to be with her, I have to change. Right. Whereas Emma, it's more, Hey, I'm someone I haven't liked or really, you know, and now I can be someone different, but somehow there's this path before me I didn't see there before because of my relationship with this man. And then on top of it, the the other layer of this and, and a layer that sort of comes back again and again, particularly with the Valkyries who are actually with the Valkyries and the Lyca, both of whom are very like hardened like pack communities, right? The like the Valkyries literally all live in the same like mansion in the bayou, like outside of um of New Orleans and um, the Lyca all live sort of in Scotland. And these two communities, they tend toward family dynamics in a really interesting way. Like, um, and I think what what's fascinating is the interplay in the book between Emma's relationship with the with her aunts at home and her relationship with Lachlan, even in those early pages when he's he hasn't you know, reached his full potential (laughs) where like she's on the phone with her aunts in New Orleans and they say, you know, I think there's a scene um, that I have marked where she says, um, I can take care of myself. And they laugh at her. They literally laugh. laugh. Yes. And and because she's being hunted uh, as, you know, an existing female vampire and the daughter of a very, well, is he a king? What is he? He's the king of the vampires. Yeah, now, that's not really like spoiler alert, but whatever. It's a 15-year-old I mean, book. <laughs> You're there. It's also like yeah. not exactly the, hard, like the hardest thing to put together. So. <laughs> She's being hunted as both you know female vampire plus princess. And the vampires will start to discover over the course of the series um, – you know, are constantly infighting. There's a big dis- there's a big battle as to who should be in charge of vampires. There are different factions. It's kind of po- it's very political, um, but not in like a weird, like boring way. Not in like a Star Wars one, two, and three way. <laughs> right? <laughs> there are no like Senate disputes. <laughs> well, I think of it as being very. I mean, I think the whole plot about 
Like, so at right, I'm a middle school English teacher and I like teach kids like the basics of plot, right? Like person versus person, person versus nature. And one of the ones that is like really fun to talk about with kids is person versus fate, right? Like who are, are, are you the person that you're fated to be? Is there a way to fight that? And I think this is like a really interesting question for immortals, especially who are not part of like a clan like Emma, right? Like she doesn't know what her fate is in terms of being a vampire and a Valkyrie because there's no one like her where Lachlan has this rock solid sense of what his life is supposed to be like, Right. And and I think bringing those them bringing those differences to the table also makes for a lot of really interesting discussions because she has to deal with his family. Right. Like once she gets to Kenavane, which is like his ancestral home, she meets, you know, his favorite cousin and, you know, the servants, this woman, Cassandra. Right. Which I'm, I'm really fascinated. She and, you know, she was convinced that Lachlan was going to be hers and cannot believe that he's mated to a vampire. But I'm also fascinated because Cassandra, of course, is this famous back to like Greek mythology. Right. Like the name of a woman who's for, foretells the future. No one listens to her. And so, you know, it's, it's hard not to think like, oh, is, is there some element of truth to what she's saying? Or is it just that everyone's going to ignore her because, um, you know, she's. Because Lachlan's a king and he doesn't want to hear it. Yeah. And I think also Cressley does a great job, like, again, in the hands – I feel like I'm going to say this every episode for 18 episodes, but um, in the hands of a lesser author, Cassandra would have been made into, like, a character of herself. And she's not. Cressley's very careful. Mm -mm. And I got to say, you guys, like, in 2007, the, like, evil other woman – was not exactly, like, that hard to find in romance. Now I feel like we're doing a little better, you know, weeding her out. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I also think one of the things that – and I that sort of brings me to something that I, I marked over and over and over again in this book now, of course, knowing that – knowing what's to come, it makes it, of course – easier to read the book and see what the foreshadowing is. Um, first of all, she there's master masterful foreshadowing here. Um, oh yeah. And and I I I I have I have to assume it was planned or else she was very she read all her books again, which I've never done. So <laughs> right. But I would say that um the thing that she establishes immediately and again it's something that in other paranormal series we don't see as it's not as common, is every single character, even the worst of them, are deeply nuanced. There is – Cressley seems to have taken to heart the sort of every – even you know, every villain is the hero of his own story kind of uh, adage. Literally, by the time we get to Lothair, that's true, right? Exactly. Lothair will come back. Um, all the vampires will come back. And, um, and over the course of this book, you start to see – evil characters who you immediately paint with a broad brush suddenly nuanced and making choices that um you know you wouldn't you wouldn't have expected and i think for me and i won't spoil this but for me the sort of climactic scene of this book still reads as a surprise to me interesting okay i mean not obviously i know it's coming but i feel like I feel like the choices that uh, particular characters make, evil characters that were painted with a broad brush make, are very um, fascinating and not necessarily fascinating because those choices are made, but why they are made. Like, Cressley doesn't – it's not the easy uh, route. Well, and that's it. Sometimes authors, I think, like, kind of set up a certain set of things to happen and then at the last minute – they balk, right? And they don't really have the courage of their convictions to sort of like carry it out the way the setup demands. And I and I did not and I think in some ways, like my surprise was a sense of, oh wow, she's it's really gonna happen this way, right? But more than anything else, even without like revealing any of those details, like that arc for Emma, who goes from being um pretty reserved and shy and and like a someone who you know people laugh at her when she says i can take care of myself that arc is rock solid yeah and by the end emma saves herself which is how it should be sarah mclean says (laughs) jen (laughs) agrees right i mean but uh, so many times that setup is there and yet still right the man comes along and saves her or or whatever cavalry 
Exactly. And, and, and here it is, it's really, and I think it's really powerful. And I think it's the reason why ultimately this book is able to sort of crawl past that like rough beginning. And it's always, you know, like I, you know, it's always going to be a really powerful story to me because Emma's like emergence of like, Hey, I'm someone who, um, who, who can take care of myself. I have instincts, right? I know how to listen to them. And then I can, you know, sort of save myself literally now, right? Not just take care of myself, but save myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I found it very powerful and very moving. And it's one of the things that I think is, um, you know, all women deserve, right? Like I'm stronger than I thought I was. Yeah. And I think there is some, I think Anybody who comes at this book and then and sort of puts it down because Emma's such a Mary Sue, like they just can't they can't embrace her and and sort of understand her. I think often I think first of all, m- many of them are putting it down before she punches yes. him and dislocates his jaw. But let's leave that aside. I do think that there's something, and I I mean I love I love a heroine who doesn't believe in herself. Like I love a heroine who struggles with confidence. Um, you know, and and that probably says something about me, but um, I think that says something about a lot of us. Like, I think many, many of I think, you know, I go back to that pretty woman, the scene where she says, you know, the bad stuff is easier to believe. I marked in this book that that whole the whole there's an entire chapter where, you know, the Valkyries are, are you know, pissing on her. Mm-hmm. Um, Lachlan's being a jerk to her. And she's thinking like she doesn't they don't believe in her. They don't believe in her strength. They don't think she can hack it. And she doesn't think she can either. And that sucks. And you feel for her. And I love her evolution into and into first like a a deeply powerful being, str- strong enough to punch out a thousand-year-old werewolf, right? Sexually like awake and cool with her sexuality. Right. Um, she sort of comes into the Valkyrie side of herself and then ultimately stands up and makes choices about her future and her life that like it require a ton of bravery. Um, all of that is incredibly well done. And I, I think Emma's I agree. I think Emma's a great character. I do I think this is a beautiful first book in a series too. Like it's really short. It's really tightly written. Um, it lays out the story of the accession and the lore and like the whole nine, the whole world. Well, and I think it's all like, so it's all those things and it's a great sort of standalone story. You could just read it and enjoy it. But I think it's really like essentially virtue signaling for what the rest of the series, which will, what the rest of the series will be like, which is not, not that like a, a strong woman will like take down an alpha male because I think we all read romance because at some level we are, are drawn to the alpha male trope. Right. But that they will make each other stronger mm-hmm. and like work in a partnership and work in tandem. Sure. I mean, and I think that's like the, again, back to that whole like old romance, you know, sort of old school to like wherever we are now is I think a lot of what romance is doing is, interrogating sort of that alpha male trope and and really like wanting to believe that we can like tame that not in a way that makes that toothless but in a way that means that like that strength becomes ours we need to talk about the scene though i think i would really like to talk about the scene where like they do mate for the first time at the full moon yeah let's do it you know what's interesting is okay so they they set the deal right like sort of like you can't you're not gonna you're not going to want it until, you, you know, until I, until I say I want it. And can I just say, can I pause? Yeah, yeah. I love a book that has a sex deal in it. Oh, God, yes. Like, I, like Devil in Winter works for me on, on works for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But it worked the best scene in that book. Um, and we'll put this in show notes. I don't, if you've never read Lisa Clavis's Devil in Winter, you should. Yeah. Um, but Devil in Winter works so well because the sex deal like ultimately, he's so committed to holding firm on the sex deal. I love a sex deal because yeah. often it's what unravels in alpha. Yes, right. Because the boundaries, I don't know. Like I think the boundaries are so interest are, are like oh, always. I don't know how to say it. Right. Like they didn't know that it would unravel them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have agreed to it. But they sure. did. Right. Well, and it's also the sort of battle between like. Um, 
the sort of most primitive, like primeval version of ourselves and the most elevated version of ourselves. It's like nobility yes. versus id, you know, and those two things cannot coexist. And so one must win out over the other. And part of the joy of the romance novel is watching you know, the hero in many cases, like, yeah, become the vision of himself that the heroine believes he can be. You make me want to be a better man. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly it. And I think this is especially powerful for Lachlan because he didn't even know that the man Emma wants him to be existed when he went into the catacombs. Mm-hmm. Yes. So he's like, it's like this really dramatic game of catch up for him. But I think the thing that 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 the full moon the reason this is so there's like a timeline right there's a deadline there is a a big gong at the end of this right because he knows that at the full moon he's not going to be able to control like the werewolf right the like a part of himself and we should also say we're not talking about he doesn't become a furry beast yeah, in fact, it's that's very like covered in the book <laughs> extensively. It's just more like like almost like an apparition, right? Like almost a projection of like this inner being that he shares his right. It's called letting the beast out of its cage, is what it's called, right? And um, the thing that's really interesting about the this scene is Emma, who is a Valkyrie and a vampire, so she's like, I'm gonna take off, like she like knocks him out and is gonna she essentially like is gonna try and run away and instead it becomes this like epic chase scene through the woods at night and the thing that's really fascinating to me is that through this blood um like bond that they share because she drinks him she has like a instincts and they they come full force mm-hmm. at this moment. So it's another moment where, right, like they are kind of equal. She doesn't just take what he is dishing out that night, right? Like she also feels and is urged to act certain ways based on these instincts that she has sort of essentially like learned from him. And I thought that that was a really smart way of doing it right like she's not just like sort of like oh i'm running through the woods and he's chasing me like there's something really primal about this sort of being chased and and leading him into this like it to the woods and she, at one point she describes like how the moon felt to her and it was you know it's clear and and i i really appreciated the sense that like he's changing for her but she's also changing for him and it felt to me at least I don't know. It's a scene that worked for me in a lot of ways, except for a science nitpick, which I can talk about in a minute if you're up for a little nerd talk. <laughs> sure. Sure. Let's do it. Yeah. So, I mean, that part, I think, is like really interesting. And then there's this other part, though, that's kind of funny is one of the ways that a like a like when they finally mate, he he like marks her and only another like a could see this. It's you know, it's like it, it, you know, it's like a bite, essentially. And he is so overcome with lust that it's like really over the top. And later his brother is like, uh, whoa, man, what'd you do there? <laughs> but that's like there are okay so over the course of this book there are gonna we are gonna come back to biting yeah that's probably our episode title (laughs) we're gonna come back to biting because there are a lot of moments in this in this series i'm sorry not book the series where biting is particularly i mean it's incredibly sexual in these books and it we come back to it again and again. And it's invariably like it's a totally, I mean, there are scenes in the series where like I was sort of, I was uh, unshockable me. (laughs) Yes. Like shocked by Are we talking about Lothair? We're talking about Lothair. Oh yeah. Which is then like, then once like she broke my seal in Lothair, like then I was fine and I wanted it in every single book. And I was never so happy as when it came back in Sweet Ruin. Oh yeah. It's intense the mating the final mating there is this there is this real moment though where she's a virgin and so there is like this sense of like deep fear both in the reader and in her and it's it's not fear it's not non-consensual fear it's fear of the unknown 
It's fear of this, like, this beast that we've heard about and heard about and heard about and what what would possibly happen. And again, Cressley doesn't shy away from it. Like, it hurts. Yeah. Like, and then, but because she has these, like, eight instincts, Cressley has sort of, like, figured out, she sort of figures out a way to navigate around it so that as a reader, you're sort of deeply relieved and so is Emma. Like, you're really, yes. really, like, in Emma's head here. Um, and it's really, really incredibly done. The like buildup of the sexual tension between these two and then the way that it just almost shockingly sort of is over, right? I mean, it's really very, I don't know, like to me, it's like another real achievement of the book is like sort of like the sense of like the urgency of that moment is so real for them. But also like I was like, these two have to do it. They've got to do it. <laughs> This is the night. Like, it cannot, I cannot wait anymore. And also, you know, like, he's so wrecked by it. Like, oh, he yeah. He doesn't want it to be that night. He doesn't want it to be the beast. He wants it to be himself. Like, this is the other thing that's really fascinating, especially with these werewolf characters, is, like, they really do feel like they're two beings. And so if one is experiencing it, the other one isn't. And so, except... Then, of course, when they're faded, that's not that's not how it works, right? Like the, everybody's pleased, everybody's sa- satisfied, and that in that sense, it's new for him too, right? Like he and I like that as well, right? Like he's also discovering something new about himself as a lover because he it's the first time he's ever been with his faded mate, just versus random whoever, right. I mean, it's a little bit magic hoo-ha. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. Fine. I don't have a problem with it. It's literal magic hoo-ha. <laughs> She's the only one in the world. It's magic. I mean, magic. they're actually witched, all these people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait. Can I tell you my nerdy science thing, though? Please, please. So, on the night of the full moon <laughs> here on Earth... Well, first of all... <laughs> here on Earth, Sarah, the full moon rises... Exactly when the sun sets. And the next morning when the full moon sets, it's like the sun rises. Like that's what defines the full moon. Uh-huh. And so that that like in the book, he's sort of like there's this thing like it's like the moon set, right? And he's like, let's sleep for a few hours before the sun comes up. And I was like, No, you must get inside immediately. The sun has the <laughs> You're just as the, the such moon a goes nerd. down. I know. And it really I was like Come on now. We need to have Neil deGrasse Tyson on this yes. podcast. <laughs> Seriously, I was like, I was like, we'll get him the, on for Bowen I was like, or McCreeve. The planetary science of this moment was not properly. <laughs> right. Maybe by the time we're doing McCreeve, we'll be so incredibly popular. We could have. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, if you're a listener and you're a big reader and you're also an astronomer or like a planetary scientist, will you hit us up and come on for another? To talk about science. I have a similar astronomy science problem in book two. So this is apparently a recurring theme with me. So hurry up. (laughs) Get to getting. Um, I think you'll probably have more when um, the Moria arrive hurtling (laughs) through space. (laughs) On their like, I mean, I still don't really understand what they're traveling on. No, but for real, if you are a a planetary scientist. At least um, confirm that I'm correct. Although I I know we're correct. And also come on the show. Yes, for uh, sure. For, th- think about coming on the show for the Sweet Ruin. Okay. Sweet Ruin's going to be like a four episode the Sweet Ruin I'm already <laughs> preparing in my brain for. Okay. Okay, but I want to also talk, we're coming, we're coming up on the end of the show, but I want to talk just briefly. I want to like put some pins in people. I want to say Nyx is already like knocking fucks Nyx. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so people, if you don't know, right, like this is a Valkyrie who is a soothsayer and, um, she, it's really interesting because she's really present in this book. Whereas later in the series, she sort of like kind of drifts in and out and in fact disappears even, right? Like people are trying to find her and they can't. And it was sort of great to come back and have her be as someone who like gets on the phone with Emma and paints her nails while they talk about what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, her setting up a lot of the future things is also really important. And in fact, the next book that's coming out is Monroe. And I don't know if you caught this. There's like a reference to um, Monroe's uh, like faded mate is 
is going to be a real, uh, I think, how do you say this word? Harridan? A harridan? Yeah. Oh, interesting. And I was like, like a real deal harridan. Is she? I didn't, I haven't, we haven't gotten to McGreeve yet. But um, yeah. So no. Monroe, so Monroe will come back later. We will, yeah. we will spend some time talking about Monroe for sure. All these, I actually have a little list, right? Like there's all these little like yeah. breadcrumbs of plot. Sure. And a lot of them are coming from Nick's, right? About what's going to happen in future books. Mm-hmm. And then um, Fury, who uh, from literally, I mean, anybody who's a romance novel reader uh, got to the moment. There's, it's very, the first mention of Fury is like a throwaway line. She's the oldest, she's the primordial Valkyrie. Um, and she has been, uh, been tortured for like hundreds of years. And essentially, it's interesting. It's very similar to Lachlan's torture, right? Except that she's underwater. So he was like being burned in fire. She's drowning, right? And so it's very much like sort of this like the elements, right, are the one thing that can like wear these. Folks well, down. Fury is is part Fury. The going back to right. Greek, Greek mythology, so it makes sense that she would be that her fire would be doused with water endlessly. Right. Right. Um, and so what's interesting is that she's it becomes clear that she's been thrown down there. She was she was told to be tortured. Um, somebody declared somebody sort of uh, insisted on her torture um, and that Lothair did it. Yes. That's what Emma's told. Right. Emma's like Lothair was in charge of that. Right. Right. And what I believed in that moment, I mean, as the sort of as the professional romance reader that I am, I was like, oh, well, clearly Fury and Lothair are the match. And I think this is the thing that I keep coming back to every time I read one of these books. I, as a writer, it's hard. I've been a romance reader for 30 years. um, And for, you know, 10 of those years, I've been a romance writer. And you can't, undo the writer instinct um, when you're reading romance. And so typically what ends up happening is like, I'm very aware of the bones of the story as we're going through. And the thing that I have loved about these books from the very first moment I picked this book up two and a half years ago is that at the beginning, Cressley lays out all the threads. And then you in your head as a as a reader, I in my head as a reader slash writer think like, okay, this is how the threads are going to be you know, woven together. And this is the outcome. And ultimately, in nearly every one of these books, they end in a different way than I would have ended them. They, the pathway is a different pathway and infinitely better than anything I could have come up with. And that's why I think they're just so delicious. Right. Because you're playing with, it's like almost, it's like masterful, right? You're playing with these tropes that exist that we've all seen before that we feel like we come across them and we can see how it's all going to turn out. And then we're wrong, right? We're wrong. And yet it's not disappointing. It's better, right? Yeah. And I think, um, so Fury comes back again and again and again, but she doesn't have a book. So don't get too excited. And Nyx is there and Lothair will return and he has um, what I believe is probably the biggest book of the series. Um, certainly the one so. that, that is most beloved and that we will get to. Before we sign off. Yes. I'm always telling my kids to read with a questioning stance. So I have all these <laughs> questions. And one of the questions I really have, like, I kind of struggle with because in ways I feel like this is profoundly feminist. But I do, I am really, um, like, bothered by the fact that the fated mate like instinct is something that men always recognize and women it's right. It's something that happens to a man, right? Like, Oh, that's my fated mate. He recognizes her. And I, and even in the entire series, I cannot think of a single book where the woman is the one who's like, you're my fated mate. I can. Which one is it? Sweet Ruin. Does she recognize? Oh, that book breaks all the rules. It's right? so good. <laughs> right. Fine. And maybe there's another one. But also I would say, to your point, is it possible? So, okay, I'm reading Peter Pan to my daughter right now. I have a copy of it that was my mom's that was given to her in like 1945. So 
I started reading this with with my daughter, and I was like, oh, I don't know what this is going to be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm always a little nervous. But we started reading it, and there's this great scene in, in like chapter two of this ancient version of Peter Pan, where Peter is telling Wendy about the Lost Boys, and he says, "The Lost Boys are boys who have fallen out of their pram." And um, the fairies have picked them up and taken care of them. And if no one comes to find them again, the, the fairies take them to Neverland, to off to Neverland, and the lost boys live there. And she says, "Why are they only boys?" And the answer, which I was very worried about, but now I'm very happy about, was, "Girls are too clever to fall out of their prams." <laughs> yes. <laughs> And I, Fine. so is it possible, I didn't think we would bring up Peter Pan in this first episode, <laughs> but is it possible that the reason why heroes are so connected to this fate of mate ideology is because they ha- they require a mate in order to be a fulfilled, like, whole person, I- yeah. whole person okay. thing? I think we're going to continue to explore this, right? Because I'm fascinated well, by it. Well, it is I really the am. title of the podcast. Yes, it is. <laughs> Luckily for us. But that was like a big question, like sort of, I think that the, and like I said, I think that the book, like all the books really sort of grapple with, like, what does this mean? And who gets to feel this way and who doesn't? And and then why, right? And And also, I mean, I have to say, Faded Mates is not my favorite trope. It rarely works for me. And yet every single one of these. I know. Every single one of these Well, you know what it is? I think partially, and I mean, we are going to do this again and again, but I think partially it's that the, in many, in the hands of, in the, in the hands of many authors, Faded Mates is the excuse to get them together. And then like, they're just together fighting an outside force. Whereas here, just because we're fated doesn't mean we have to like each other. Right. Or want to be near each other or want to interact with each other in any way except, you know, to your point, man versus fate. Like, can you change it? Right. Well, and I think this is the part, the antidote to this book, the antidote to sort of that fated mate, like the 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 tyranny of that, right, is the Valkyrie's rule for falling in love, which is... You know it's your true love when you want to run into his arms, right? And yeah. that is all about yeah. a choice, right? If this is not something that happened to you, it's something you decide. And and there, and I think there's, I think that's like a really important like sort of setup for what we see going forward, which is, you know, this idea of, you know, and it's a question they ask each other: Would you run into his arms? And then when you say yes. Nobody's going to argue with you anymore. I mean, that's like the, like, right? You get to essentially, it's like you just played the ace in the hole by saying, I, I, I ran into his arms. It's what I wanted. It's beautifully done. And to your point, I don't know, like, I, my instinct is that the sort of love is something that happens to men and love is something that w- the, the women choose in this book are, is my instinct is that that's like deeply feminist, but I can see why it's not. there for me yet. But we're going to noodle this out. We are. But I I think for me, that's like a recurring theme is this one about, right? Because it it is ultimately a romance, right? Like the paranormal elements of it, all of that is, is secondary to this question about love and what it means when we decide to be together. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I like the faded mates trope because I, I like to, you know, I, I joked once in a review, it's shooting Cupid's arrows at people and then trapping them in an elevator together, right? Like, what's what's going to happen, right? Like, it's, it's snowbound, but without the snow. And I think that that's interesting to me. But like you said, for so many people, it's just this excuse to get them together or for the man to say mine. And this is so much more compelling to me the way this all plays out. Yay. So stick with us. Um, episode two is No Rest for the Wicked, which um, is Sebastian Roth, who is a turned vampire. We haven't even talked about the difference between born vampires and turned vampires, but we will next week, next week or in two weeks, whenever the next one is. Um, and another Valkyrie, a Valkyrie assassin, Caterin the Coldhearted, um, who 
hates everything. <laughs> well, that's not really Except true. Except her sisters she's, and her family. She's her the cold heartedness is not that she hates things, it's that she's she doesn't feel anything. Yeah. She lack and that's that's an excellent point. Yeah. She lacks emotion. Um, and he is, uh, and then it is the beginning of the amazing race, Immortals After Dark Style, which is bananas fun. So yeah, it's super fun. It's great. Don't miss this one. It's going to be really, really fun. And it's the beginning of truly, I believe that the that a hunger like no other is like crustly, like sort of you know getting her sea legs, and then this is really the beginning of the lore world building. That becomes yes. so critical to the whole series. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. All right. Well, thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Jen. Where really can fun. people find you? On Twitter at Jen Reads Romance. Or I have a website of um, book recommend romance recommendations at jenreadsromance.com. And I am Sarah McLean, M-A-C-L-E-A-N. And you can find me at Sarah McLean on all the platforms. Yes. Just Google her. She's like a real person in the world. <laughs> well, you're a real... I've, I've met you. You're real You're real too. I'm a real person in the world. That's true. Um, but this is great. Uh, find us on Twitter. Hashtag uh, FadedMatesPod. Um, tweet us. Ask us questions. Tell us if you're into space and want to talk about full moons. Make sure you back Jen up on full moons. I know I'm right, everybody, but it's okay. I still welcome being told I'm right. (laughs) We can't wait to see you next time. But that was it. I actually literally wrote it down. Nit- nitpick. Full moon sets at sunrise all over the world. Hello. Oh, my God. They yeah. wouldn't have had more night. He's like, we have more night. I'm like, yeah, no, I, don't. I 100% Get her don't, ass care. Inside. don't care. Don't yeah. care. <laughs> I wrote down science exclamation point.